0: Well, good morning, beloved. Good morning to all of you. I bring you greetings from Fresno, California and the people of Campus Bible Church. I've been to this church many, many times. We've got to tell you, it's a little confusing. It's tough enough to get to the airport, drive here, get lost coming here, end up in Wisconsin or something like that. But then you keep changing the name and adding locations. I'm going to get the hint here. But all of that to say, I'm excited about what God is doing in this church. If you're visiting here in the Compass Church, I want to tell you, if I lived in this area, I would attend this church as well. I want to tell you, I love these people. I love their love of their pastor. I love their support of the leadership. And I love how they love the Word of God. Amen. And I want to encourage you to come and be a part of this assembly of people uh, because they exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And we join them a few thousand miles away with that same passion And I greet you in the name of the Lord. And I love having these young people here. I got to tell you, I am so tempted to just move everything, come down there, sit with you, and let's talk through the Word of God together because I love you guys. I'm so excited about your future because you are the future. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Let's give them a hand as well, all right? And, you know, the Lord had a different plan for me because originally I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Possibly even a judge. So I grew up watching those fictional lawyer shows like Perry Mason and Matlock. And I even learned how to tolerate some of the reality shows like Judge Judy and uh, The People's Court. But I've always wondered what gene pool they pulled those people from, if you want to know the truth. But all of that to say, I'm going to clap my hands. This is no longer the Compass Church. It's now a courtroom. It's now a courtroom. Out there, through those doors, we have the prosecutors ready to come in. Those who question the reliability of this book that we call the Bible. In fact, some of them may even be here this morning. Maybe a family member invited you to church and you're thinking, Oh no, not a bunch of Bible thumpers. Oh no. No. They're going to preach platitudes from some spiritual book and they're going to declare it to be the word of God. And, but in here, let me tell you, there are some defenders. What we call Christian apologists. Hundreds of you who believe what the apostle Peter said in first Peter chapter three, verse 15, when he called every born again believer to make a defense. The Greek word is apologia. It means to make a legal defense to everyone who asks you to give an account For the hope that is in you, yet to do it with gentleness and with reverence. So, with your Bibles open this morning, and with your hearts filled with that hope that you have in Jesus Christ, and with that spirit of gentleness, and yes, even that spirit of reverence, because we're not going to beat down anybody today, I want to present to you the case of the reliable Bible versus its many, many critics. All right, now, it's going to be like drinking out of a fire hose, and I realize that because we're going to blitz through this. If you think I was fast the last time, well, hang on to your hats, take notes, and so forth, and you can always download these messages. You can get the outlines. They're going to provide them for you online, I believe, and so forth. But I begin with one of my favorite historical characters, Abraham Lincoln, who said these immortal words. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to men All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated through this book. How many of you believe that? Will you raise your hand? But unfortunately, too many disagree with him. Too many treat this book as another history book, as a book of wisdom and religious values and spiritual platitudes written by well-meaning and devout men. They, They don't question the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter's sincerity. They don't question Jesus of Nazareth as a good teacher and a, and a good man and so forth. But listen to me, believer. There is nothing more fundamental than understanding that the Bible is much more. If you and I are going to present that apologia, that legal defense of the hope that lies within us to those who question the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we must first begin with having them understand the existence of God and secondly understand the trustworthiness of his word. If not, everything we say is just opinion. And opinions are like noses. Most everybody has one. And I want to tell you something. This is the foundation upon which we answer the objections that people truly have in their heart of hearts. So I begin this morning with my theological presuppositions. I'm going to make some assumptions. Some assumptions that I hope you believe as well, and most of the world believes, that there really is a God who is there. That there is a God and you're not Him. How many believe that? And that God... Is not just somehow separate from his creation, but that God is also intimately involved with his creation. And God spoke. Everybody said, God spoke. Amen. And when God speaks, things happen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Traveling at 186,000 miles a second, there was light. And I'm assuming also that you understand. That God spoke through men. In the words of the apostle Peter, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Second Peter one twenty one. How many believe that? Raise your hands. Now, with that in mind, we move on then to say God spoke through men that which is accurate and reliable. Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen, where the apostle Paul said, "All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable." All Scripture. Everybody say all Scripture. Not just some Scripture. Not just the ones you want to believe, but all. What does the word all mean in the original Greek language? It means all. All Scripture is inspired and God-breathed and profitable. In other words, our assumption and our belief is this, that in the world there are two kinds of books, the Bible and everything else. The Bible and everything else. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so here we stand. And I want to somehow come to you not as a pastor, not as a professor, not as a president of Jaron Ministries, but but as a, a fellow Christian defense attorney just like you. And I want to stand before you and and give my opening statement. I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God as the direct revelation of God to man. If you believe that, will you read it with me? And I want to hear it loud, everybody. I believe. In other words, we believe it came from God Himself. Certainly He used human writers. But without error in the original autographs, the original manuscripts written in Hebrew and Aramaic and the Koine or common Greek language of the first century A.D., he gave his direct revelation to man. Now, at that point, once you've made your statement, Mr. and Mrs. Attorney, now we have to give our evidence. And in the short amount of time I have... I want to talk about the defense exhibits and the defense witnesses and the defense statements and write them down as quickly as you might. Defense exhibit number one that I would present to you is what we call in theology the internal evidence. In other words, evidence from Genesis to Revelation, from the pages of Scripture themselves. Theologian Charles Hodge said it this way, the best evidence of the Bible being the Word of God is found between its covers. So I give you defense statement number one that the human writers of the Scriptures claim them to be God's Word. Over 2,600 times, you'll find the writers saying, the Word of the Lord came to me, or thus saith the Lord. In other words, they didn't just believe that what they were saying were the words of men, but the Word of God itself. And some would argue, well, that's circular reasoning, that the Bible says that the Bible is the Word of God, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But don't miss this. If they were alive today, the 40 authors of Scripture, these 66 books that we call the Biblios, one single book called the Bible, they would testify about the authenticity and the reliability of the books that they wrote. In fact, let's call to the stand some of those witnesses. Internal witness number one, the Apostle Paul and he would come and stand before you and quote what you read or saw earlier on screen. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. And he wrote it in the Greek language of the first century. And if he had wanted to, he would have said, It is man-breathed. But he didn't. He put the word theos and neustos together and said, They are God-breathed. They are not man-breathed. And then he would sit down. And we would call up as a second internal witness, the Apostle Peter, who in turn would tell us what he wrote in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. But he said, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit did what, folks? Spoke from God. And then he would sit down, and Paul would get up again. And he would recite what he wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. What is it? The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And then Paul would sit down. And Peter said, hey, wait a minute, I'm not done. Get back up to the stand, internal witness number four. This time reciting what he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. This time talking about what Paul wrote. What Paul wrote Romans and First and Second Corinthians. And when he wrote Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1 and 2 Timothy and 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus and, and Philemon. When he wrote those epistles on some debate over, over Hebrews. But listen to me. Peter was about to say that Paul's Writings were nonetheless Scripture. Look what he says. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort... Watch this now, everybody. As they do what? The rest of Scripture. You say, well, that's the human writers. They were just deluded... All right, then let's go to the divine writer himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. Defense statement number two, Christ himself claiming the Scriptures to be God's Word. And I don't have the time to go through all this. I take you to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Starts with an M, ends with a W, everybody. Matthew, all right? And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus affirmed the authority of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew 10, he affirmed the accuracy of the historical events that were recorded in Scripture. In Matthew 21 and 22, he argued and taught from Scripture as its complete and trustworthy and reliable source of revelation. Here's the point. When Jesus was praying in the garden and he prayed that high priestly prayer, John 17, 17, he declared to his heavenly Father, thy word is truth. Everybody say that. Thy word is truth. So obviously, philosophers and False teachers have argued that's circular argumentation. The Bible says the Bible is the word of God. Well, wait a minute. Don't the Hindu scriptures say that they are sacred and holy scriptures? Doesn't the Quran say that it is what? Holy scripture revealed to them by God through his prophet Muhammad. Listen, that's circular argumentation. So let's do this. Let's put our Bibles aside. And let's put it to another test called the external evidence. Let's look at it from the outside rather than the inside. Anybody with me? Three of you. Anybody with me? And this time I want to call to the stand archaeologists and historians and present a body of evidence, external witness number one, the Bible's unique archaeological and historical accuracy. Anybody that has any substantial degree in archaeology Knows the name Nelson Glick. And and he was a renowned archaeologist. And listen to what he said. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. You're going to hold on to that. Now, I have to tell you that for hundreds and hundreds of years, theologians and philosophers have fought over the book of Genesis. Especially some of the customs that were presented that we have no historical evidence of those things really happening. But then something happened. We found 70,000 clay tablets called the Nutzi tablets that were dated around 1500 B.C. This was uh, from the, the, uh, Professor Chica from the College of the American Schools of Oriental Research. And guess what he found? The genesis was absolutely accurate. That you have record in those tablets of the selling of a birthright, just like Jacob did in Genesis 25, or the claiming of an estate by the possessing of the family gods like Rachel did in Genesis 31, or the barren wife giving her slave to her husband to bear a child, just as we did in Genesis 16 in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Over and over and over again. I wish I had the time to go through all that. But then they fought over Moses and whether he wrote the the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because they argued that there was no writing at the time of Moses, that the writing began around 1,000 B.C., around the time of David's monarchy. But then in 1929, we found the Shamra tablets. And that threw us into a whole world of trouble because they were written 1,400 B.C., the time of Moses. And then... We found the code of Hammurabi that showed writing 300 years even before Moses. Oh, this is a reliable book. Amen? And then they argued that Abraham never existed because Ur of Chaldees never existed. Then they found the ruins. That'll throw you into a tailspin. Then they argued that Sodom and Gomorrah didn't exist. And then they found the ruins, and they found the ruins charred. That'll throw you into a whole other tailspin over and over again. Just a few weeks ago, I was standing in the British Museum and I was looking at a clay tablet that was shaped like a corn in the cob, only about this big, big fat corn in the cob. And I started to weep. Now, folks, it's not because I like corn. It's because this is the cylinder of Cyrus, the king of Medo-Persia. Because for centuries, we have said, no way did the Jews ever get permission to go from Babylon back into the land. Then you read it right there on that cylinder. Your Bible is so accurate. Amen? Oh, let's go and call some others up. External witness number two. This time we move from the historians and the archaeologists to the scientists. Again, let me say to you that the the Bible is not primarily a science book, but when it speaks scientifically, it speaks accurately. I just got back from the European Leadership Forum with a gathering of 500 theologians and scientists from 33 European countries to develop a strategy for reaching that very pagan continent. Where Christianity has declined 35%, whereas in Africa it's gone up 2,200%. In Latin America, 5,300%. I have a newsletter out there on the table that explains all of that. And as we got together before the Lord, and I heard these scientists profoundly speak of the accuracy of the Word of God, and I wish I could have all 500 of them come here and talk to you today. And you look at other sacred writings, like the Hindu scriptures. How's this for accuracy? The world is flat and triangular. It's composed of stages made of honey, sugar, butter, and wine. The whole mass is born on the heads of countless elephants which shake to produce earthquakes. Now you compare that to the accuracy. What accuracy, Jim? Fine, thank you for asking. A hundred years ago, a scientist made the remarkable statement that there are only five manifestations of the knowable in existence. Time, force, Action, space, and matter. These are the fundamentals upon which everything happens. It was considered a, a great discovery. And yet, if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, what is that? Time. God, what's that? Force. Created. What's that? Action. The heavens, what's that? Space. And the earth, what's that? Matter. It even gets it in order. Oh, your Bible is so accurate. And whereas the Greeks and the Romans believed that the earth was held in place by big poles on, on the back of Atlas, you go to the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. Even before the Greeks and the Romans were on the scene, Job was written. And in Job 26.7, it tells us that the earth is suspended in space. Job six seven: he, that's God, stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. It wasn't until Nicholas Copernicus comes onto the scene that we realize that the earth is poised in empty space. You jump over a few verses to chapters 26, verse 10 of Job, and it says, He, God, has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters. It was only hundreds of years ago we believed the earth was flat and you'd fall off the edge into nothingness. And yet the Bible declares that the horizon isn't flat. It's a circle. Why? Because the earth is round. You go on to Genesis, our Job, rather, 38, verse 12 to 14. It speaks of the rotation of the earth like clay under the seal. How many of you have ever seen a rolling pin for making bakery stuff, right? That's exactly what they used to do when they printed. They would inscribe script on the, on the scroll, and then they would, on its axis, they would roll out the print. Take that now rolling pin and call it the earth, and take the axis at 23 and a half degrees, and you have Job telling us that the earth is like clay under the seal. Uh, In Job 41, verse 18 to 21, it talks about Leviathan. And for centuries, people have been fighting over the fact of how bizarre the Bible is because it talks about these creatures that breathe fire hot enough to kindle coals. And they fought over this. Until some folks come along and found ancient dinosaur fossils that had tubes running along their skull to the stomach so that they could release methane gas produced by decaying vegetation in the animal's stomach. And like an electric eel or a firefly, they sparked those gases resulting in what? Bursts of flame from either the nostrils or the mouth. Tell me your Bible isn't accurate. They just discovered this a few years ago. How accurate is your Bible? But well, that's not enough, is it? Let's go to external evidence and witness number three, and that's the unique prophetic accuracy of this book we call the Bible. You guys with me? Anybody tired yet? Tough cookie. we got to go on. Psalm 22. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ comes on the scene, and even hundreds of years before they even invented crucifixion, we read these prophetic words of the Messiah. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, my, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and, and you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They, they pierced my hands and my feet. I, I can count all my bones. They, they look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. What does that sound like to you? At the crucifixion scene? If we had the time, I'd take you through Numbers 24 and Genesis 49 and Micah 5 too, Because all of those point to the fact that the Messiah would come from the line of Jacob and the line of Judah and the family of David and Jesus of Nazareth did. Isaiah 7.14, written 700 years before the fact, foretells of a Messiah who would be born of a virgin. Jesus was. Micah 5.2 predicts that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was. Zechariah chapter 11 foretells of a Messiah who would be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver. And that the one who betrayed the Messiah would buy a plot of land with the money that he bought. Exactly what Judas did. Isaiah 59 tells us that he would be hung between two thieves and that his body would be laid in a rich man's tombs. Jesus was. If we looked at Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, Psalm 34, Exodus chapter 12, you would learn from those hundreds of years before the fact that the Messiah would have a thrust, a spear thrust in his side. His garments would be divided in four. His executioners would gamble for his robe. His legs would not be broken, even though crucifixion required the legs to be broken. And let's not forget Psalm 16 and Psalm 68 predicting his resurrection and his ascension. Oh, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies fulfilled and, and many more yet to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. Now, folks, I, I can't put all this together for you. Uh, all I know is that one mathematician said it this way, that the odds of only eight of those hundreds of prophecies coming true is... 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 followed by 17 zeros. How would you like to have that much money in your checking account? Even then, I don't get that. I don't, I, I, that doesn't equate with me. And so he put it this way. If you were to cover the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, then mark one of those silver dollars, then blindfold a man, the odds of a man on his first try, blindfolded, picking up that marked silver dollar is 10 to the 17th power. And that's just for 8 Of the hundreds of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. How accurate is your Bible? But that's not all we need. We also go to external witness number four, the Bible's unique harmony. What an amazing book you hold in your hand. Contains 66 books written in three languages Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek over a period of 1600 years with 40 different authors. On three continents, Asia and Africa and Europe. Men who were priests and prophets and shepherds and fishermen and kings and peasants and doctors. and They even threw in a tax collector. Can you imagine all these people getting along, let alone writing the same things in perfect harmony? Unless God superintends. That's exactly what we have in this unity. We have a one world view that there is a God and we're not him. We have one assessment of human nature that we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We have one Lord who alone is worthy of worship. We have one faith by which all men are saved. And we have one central theme, that the God of the universe and creator of heaven and earth was in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and reconciling the world to himself. How do you do that? You and I, just 40 of us watching an accident right out here on the road in front of this church, wouldn't even get it together. We'd fight over the details, What's harmony we have because of God's superintendence over this book. Witness number five, external witness number five, is the Bible's unique character. And certainly it's unsurpassed in its subjects, but even more so in the way it presents those subjects. I marvel at this book of how honest it is. It doesn't present people as super saints with S's on their T-shirts. You know, you see frail Abraham. You know, you see, you know, you see stubborn uh, Moses. You, you see people warts and all. Theologian Lewis Ferry Chafer said it well when he observed, "Is not such a book as man would write if he could or could write if he would. External witness number six is the Bible's unique preservation in history. By the way, as curious as this is, many historians are baffled over this one. And they ask the question, why is the Bible the best preserved of all works transmitted from antiquity? The Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Uh, You know, the Old Testament scriptures so accurately copied manuscripts because the science of textual criticism is, in fact, even today, one of the most precise sciences in the history of science. And I don't have the time to explain how they counted backwards and forwards and, and counted in order to get the accuracy of the scriptures so that we might be able to trust this book. I could talk about those. I can talk about the 5,000 Greek manuscripts that we have and all the relevant documents. I want to tell you what you can hold on to, that when the Bible says my word abides forever, you can believe it abides for what? Forever. It's a marvelous thing, especially in light of history, of how many people tried to destroy this book. A couple hundred years before Christ was on the scene, Antiochus, we call him Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus IV tried to destroy this book, the Old Testament scriptures at that time. And he failed. Let's go on a few centuries to a man by the name of Voltaire, the philosopher, who tried to destroy Christianity. And here's how he said he had to do it. If we would destroy the Christian religion, we must first of all destroy man's belief in the Bible. What I love is the irony of God. Because the very printing press in which he printed out those materials was used to print the Geneva Bible. That's the first Bible that landed on the American colonies, not the King James Version. The household Bible in America, the very first one used in houses was the Geneva Bible. Oh, the irony of God. Amen? What an incredible God we have. Now, if you're an attorney today, you know that in law school you were taught that the strongest evidence in a court of law is what's called evidence from a negative source. In other words, if somebody who hates you wants to destroy you, is negative about you, under oath, shares a positive thing about you. Most likely, that thing is real. Here's Voltaire giving evidence of the danger of the Word of God. Why did he care if it's just a book? Why destroy this? You know, why isn't it just like Reader's Digest? We can live without Reader's Digest. I apologize to those of you that spend a lot of time there. But he knew something about this book. He knew it changes lives. Lastly, our presentation of the amazing character of the Bible also involves statements regarding the Bible's unique influence on people and nations. 2 Timothy 3.17, that the Bible is profitable, equipping us for every good work. I'm going to take you out of this courtroom. I'm going to take you to another courtroom called the Court of Public Opinion. I want you to just listen to some of the quotes from famous people on the influence of the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible's influence on civilization. Daniel Webster said this, There is no solid basis for civilization but in the word of God. Dwight D. Eisenhower, The Bible is endorsed by the ages. Our civilization is built upon its words. How about the influence on government? President Andrew Jackson said, That book, sir, is the rock on which this, our republic stands. How about the Bible's influence on law? You who are attorneys, listen to this. Robert E. Lee said it this way, from the Bible has grown the jurisprudence of all civilized nations and the true history of social right. You learned this in law school. You learned it, not just reading prosser on torts and other stuff. I want to tell you, you'll learn that jurisprudence comes out of the history of the law in the Old Testament, not only here, but in Europe. Lowell Thomas said, the Bible is of vital importance in teaching freedom. Dictators fear the Bible, and for good reason, it inspired the Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence. How about its influence on literary thought? Theodore Roosevelt, our 26th president, said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. I wish I could impose that on every one of you. How about the influence on lives? Thomas Carlyle said this, there never was another book like the Bible. And there never will be such another. For in it alone we have God's answer to the cry of every human heart. God's solution to every world problem. God's remedy for every unsatisfactory condition. God's provision for every individual need. God's love letter to every sin-sick soul. Oh, I've got so many here. Henry Ford that said all the sense of integrity, honor, and service I have in my heart I got from hearing the Bible read. I can go on and on, historian after historian, and record after record of people declaring how the Bible changed them. But I want to tell you the strongest argument in this court is you, is me. How many of you would give testimony today that the Word of God changed your life? Raise your hand. You are the witness. You are the one that has to give that account for the hope that lies within you. I I love the story of the philosophy professor. He's... You know, he's teaching a group of students, probably at Canaanite Junior College. And and he stands there before them and he says, I've read the Bible. Didn't make a bit of sense to me. And a Christian student stood up and said, Sir, with all due respect, I believe the Bible is a love letter from God to his children. And that's what you get for reading somebody else's mail. (laughs) In the front of my Bible, it says, Dear Jim, in the back it says, love God, your heavenly Father. This is a love letter. It is not just a history book. It is not just a theological book. It is a love letter from God the Father to his children. And if you read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, you have a special ability because of the ministry of the Spirit of God to understand this book. Whereas others read it and it's foolishness to them because they don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. This is not a book that you just pick up and read and hope to get everything out of it. You need an indwelling Holy Spirit to explain it to you. Listen, I'm a grandparent. I have six grandchildren and two more coming, all of them four years old or under. I don't know how that happens, but don't come to my house. You'll get pregnant. But i got to tell you what I do with my grandkids. The same thing I did with my children. I love reading the Word of God to them. And I sing in my crooked voice, you know, the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know what you are reciting? You're reciting the words of the, of, of the Reformation 500 years ago when they not only talked about sola gratia and, and sola fide, but they talked about sola scriptura. Scripture alone, that's what we stand on, amen? That's our authority and the final authority of our faith in practice. The B-I-B-L-E, other books given for our information, this one given for our transformation. So I stand before this court and I give my my summary statement, my closing argument. In first year law school, I've never been there, but I'm told this is that you learn a Latin expression called res ipsa loquitur. It means the thing speaks for itself. It, it has to do with evidence, that, that evidence speaks for itself. And so I've stood before you, I, I've given internal evidence, I've given external evidence that God spoke, God spoke through men, and that God spoke through men that which is profitable and reliable. You can do with it what you want. But understand, you can also praise him for the fact that he preserved the Bible and he's called you and us and me to have the Bible not only in our own language but in other languages. And i got to tell you, he also called us to spend time here because you can put it on your shelf all you want, but the longest journey in the world is 18 inches from your head to your heart. You can't stick this under your pillow and somehow hope that through osmosis you'll wake up and outline the book of Obadiah. You won't even be able to find it. So I close with a quote from an attorney, William Jennings Bryan, one of the most famous attorneys in American history. Here's what he said. The Bible is either true or false. It is either the word of God or the work of man, one or the other. If the Bible is the work of man, then it is not the word of God. And if the Bible is just the work of man, it's the great imposter, this world, the greatest impostor this world has ever known. From its first page to its last, the Bible claims to be the revealed will of God. If it can be convicted of being a lie, it not only must come down from its high place to the level of man-made books, but it will sink even lower than that. If it can be convicted of being an imposter, it never can survive the odium which that conviction will place upon it. But if it is true, then there is no other book to be mentioned in comparison with it. If it is true, then no guesses of any man can be substituted for the word of God. And God's people said today, Amen. Res ipsa loquitur. The Bible speaks for itself. And court is adjourned. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the Word of God, the Spirit of God. And I thank you for these people of God. Empower us with this knowledge, not only the internal evidence, but the external evidence, so that we might share with others. But even more so, that when we open the pages of Scripture, we might have confidence that this is not the word of men, that this is, in fact, the word of God. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And we thank you in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. We'll see you next time, and I hope God blesses each one of you today.